Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Russell. Nice to see you, Russell. Don Jeffries, nice to see you as well, too. And William Law, it's a pleasure to have all three of you guys here. I would call this a panel. I'm going to say it's a JFK panel. But I would like to start off the, I guess, the podcast with what is one thing you learned from the JFK assassination? We can start with Russell, go to Don, and then we'll end with you, William. Well, thank you, Robbie. It's good to be here. And nice to see Don and, and William. Um, one thing I've learned, or I've learned such a lot, um, I would say one of the important things I've learned is um, how how much the evidence could be manipulated by legal teams, uh, you know, starting with the Warren Commission and going through all the other reviews that I've uh, written about in my book, Medical Evidence. Um, uh, and I think that's the biggest thing for me is how much the evidence could be manipulated by an establishment um, and I'll leave it to the other guys to pick up on that perhaps Don okay yeah I mean uh, JFK was assassinated when I was uh, seven years old and uh, it had a huge impact one of the one of the biggest <laughs> things that happened during my childhood even even with my family because it affected my Catholic family at large very, you know they were all Kennedy fans and they were distraught so you know i saw this weeping and conjecture and all that as a seven-year-old and uh it immediately i think really helped to, to cause a, a distrust i have of the system because uh there was nobody around me that believed lee harvey oswald did it I mean, they really they were all thinking johnson did it pretty much but so i was kind of steeped in that as a kid and i really didn't i didn't look into it until i was a teenager and uh, then I was i latched on with mark lane's uh, citizens committee of inquiries a, a teenage volunteer there but I just, you know, I read everything and it was, it just immediately, I went, well, God, they certainly were right. You know, I don't know who did it, but obviously Oswald didn't. So it, it really opened my eyes to how, uh, you know, because at that time I was thinking I wanted to be a journalist. You know, I was a liberal Democrat, very far left wing. And I, my heroes were Woodburn Bernstein, you know, that's what I want to do, you know. And then I suddenly realized, wow, you know. Wilbur and Bernstein don't care at all about this issue and neither does anybody else in the media. And uh, it really disillusioned me to see that the media could cover up like this for really awful people. And uh, I've never looked back from that. Basically all my writing that I, that, that I write about it, you know, if there's a, a constant theme in it is that we have a state controlled media. If they, cause I couldn't have written any of my books. If they, and that, the JFK assassination books would have needed to be written. You wouldn't have had to have, you know, a retired chicken farmer like Harold Weisberg or a housewife like Shirley Martin. The people that did the actual investigation certainly wasn't any, no one in the mainstream media except Dorothy Kilgallen was doing that. And then they, they knocked her off, but she was the only one. And uh, if they had done their job, which is, you know, to expose something like this, obviously, uh, then none of those books would have been written. We wouldn't be talking about this here today. So it opened the door to me to to many, many, many rabbit holes that I've chased uh, down. The I, I tend not to believe anything at all and distrust all authority. And it, it's because of uh, 
the JFK assassination. William? Well, for me, uh, I bought it. As a kid, um, I bought the whole thing. It was it was part of history that that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, shot Kennedy. You know, guy shot a, uh, from a building and killed a man in a car, the president. And uh, I remember when I was in my early teens having a discussion with my father who had been in World War II and uh, pretty cynical guy overall. And we had a little discussion about about uh, the assassination of the president. And uh, I remember he said, you can bet that some bitch Johnson had something to do with it. <laughs> and uh, Arkansas. And I, I remember I told him, Dad, Dad, you are talking about the president of the United States. Um, it took me years to uh, be as cynical as my father, but by God, I reached that level. And uh, like Don, uh, uh, I don't really trust anything the government puts out on either side. I mean, you know, when you realize that if you are in the midst of power, you have power all around you, you have power yourself, you can manipulate anything. We've now come to the world where I hate to say it, but nothing can be taken at face value. Absolutely nothing. You know, I I grew up, you know, thinking, you know, God, mom, and apple pie. And, and uh, my parents were really honest. And, and, you know, their word was their bond. And I grew up like that. And I thought everybody in the world should be like that. And it took me uh, not long to grasp that not everybody was like that. And the world around us is not, you know, Everything we see cannot be believed. Everything we hear cannot be believed. And, and delving into the Kennedy assassination really taught me that lesson and I, in a really hard way. When you sit across from men that have had their hands on the body of the president of the United States, and, and they've done all these things, and they keep trying to come forward and tell people what happened, and it really has no effect. You feel their, you feel their distrust. You feel their cynicism. It hits you like a wave. And of all those people that I interviewed, I would say Jim Jenkins was was the was the most that really smacked me hard. I mean, when I first interviewed him, and I'm I'm uh, up in the hotel room, and he says to to me. Um, you know, I learned at 19 or 20 years old that my country was no better than a third world country. I don't trust people and I don't trust the government. And this was the start of it, meaning the Kennedy assassination. I mean, the, one of the most dangerous aspects of that is if we talk about medical manipulation, if we talk about media manipulation, it's this factor that when we talk about witnesses, I mean, 
I've had so many people recently tell me that you can't trust witness testimonies. And I think it's agreed. Like the only time you can never really remember something is if you've had like combat experience or if you've had something to be able. So that debunks the witnesses. But then if you talk about then what's the rest of the evidence left? And they say, well, it would be the actual forensic evidence and all this type of stuff. I'm like, so the stuff that's in the hands of the people that might be responsible for the whole thing in the first place are now controlling that investigation, whether it's medical evidence. I mean, I wouldn't, I, and that would get labeled as conspiracy. The public wouldn't be able to, they would immediately roll their eyes at it. But you just say, don't you find it weird that as soon as Kennedy's at Parkland, they're washing out the limo. Um, his clothes are sent by, I don't know if it was Johnson's order to go get changed or go whatever happened. It's a, it's a crime scene. There's just certain things in an investigation that you start doing. And then I feel like this is how you start getting the public in on the discussion. The issue that I guess we're kind of with the research and everything is that everyone has spent so much time researching it. So they're already at like Vincent Salandria level, like they're already well involved. But then the general public is still like numb and not interested. And it's like, how do we just give them a couple basic points to be like, here's this example. Don't you think that's strange? And the more strangeness you kind of raise in it. And I, I'm trying to show prior events to it. I mean, I try and bring up the church committee. I mean, people don't want to think like a heart attack gun is a conspiracy, but that was a real thing that they showed in the church committee. And it's like, okay, well, if that's a very extreme example, let me start getting you to another example. How many people in the JFK assassination that went with this official narrative were either following orders or were a part of the plot? And then you start looking at Arlen Specter. He built his whole career off that single bullet theory. Was he caring about the actual investigation or what actually happened, or was he just following orders? And then you kind of can slowly start taking down the wall of conspiracy and open it up to the public. Well, when you know that you think that the Warren commission was a, a prosecution brief, really. So the, the lawyers that were involved in that were only looking at prosecuting Oswald, only looking for evidence that went against Oswald. They're not, they're not looking for any defense evidence. And of course they shut any any defense out by shutting out Mark Lane. Um, and I, the other thing that strikes me from what you've just said is that we must be careful not to judge the, the people who were responsible for collecting the evidence at the time by today's standards. And, and we know that um, a lot of the DPD were um, well, they'd not been to school for as long as uh, people go to school now. And certainly people in the Secret Service were similarly not as well schooled as we are now. I don't know how well they knew about protecting a crime scene, um, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if the guys that sloshed out the limousine at Parkland knew nothing about protecting a crime, crime scene. Uh, I'm sure the other guys will chip in on that. Yeah, you're, you're right, Russell. I, I talk about that all the time. That's one of the really important thing is that and we we get lost and somebody like William and I we have lots of conversations and we can get lost in real minutia because we can appreciate it you know we've been studying this for a long so it means a lot to us whether you know a particular witness you said this or whatever but for the average general public it's hard to distill it down to something real simple even though it is it is pretty simple but I I always stress the Secret Service because they they're the ones that allowed it to happen. There's no question about it. And in a real investigation, they would have been grilled. 
they were instead they were kind of lauded and glossed over. And Clint Hill, you know, still alive all these decades later. He's making more money than I've made for my books off of this stuff. And uh, he's lying. And it's it's hard because I mean, he really should just go hide and just be ashamed of what of what he didn't do that day. He's the only one left that. But you're right. They cleaned out that that was the crime scene and they should. You would think that the Secret Service at that level would have some kind of training to know what a crime scene was. And the limo was the crime scene. So once they washed it out, which they did, and then, then we lots of people saw a bullet hole in the windshield, which just shattered the official story as well. They replaced the windshield. So it, this is the kind of stuff. So when uh, Robbie was talking about witnesses, and you get that all the time from the other side, and you also get it from what I call neocons, and not, not the kind of neocons that run our foreign policy, but neo-believers in conspiracy. And our research community is run by these guys now. They know who they are, but I get arguments. I don't anymore, but I used to. And they're constantly trying to poo-poo the evidence for conspiracy. So we're left with nothing. Because if you if you dismiss all the witnesses, people like Roger Craig, uh, who I've done shows with Roger Craig Jr. And his, I mean, this, this was a brave guy, the only, probably the only lawman that did his job that day. And he was killed. There's no question about it. But people like that, they try to dismiss because they say, well, he said this here, he said this here. They're always going after people that present the strongest evidence for conspiracy. If you get rid of all the witnesses, then you're left with the evidence, which is Robbie aptly pointed out, was in the hands of the probable conspirators. Much of it has been lost. Much of it, what do you do? The Stemmons Freeway sign was replaced right away. Probably had a bullet hole in it. What do you do with that? It's gone. Um, it's it's ironic we're talking now because uh, David Lifton just passed away this week. Uh, it's way what he thought about that because I know he was a big influence on him because he specialized in the medical evidence. But uh, Lifton, because of all these all this shenanigans, he came up with a really theory that I, I don't know if it's possible or not, body alteration, all that. But he, he came up with lots of evidence, lots of questions that needed to be answered. And that's because the people who were supposed, were tasked to investigate it, never did. So if I could tell people one thing, understand that the assassination of the president of the United States took place in broad daylight. Uh, then two days later, you had the chief suspect killed while 70 police officers were around them. Somehow they left his front completely open. They allowed him to be killed. And then a couple hours later, you had the assistant attorney general of the United States, Robert F. Kennedy's brother, still in shock, can't do anything. Nicholas Kotzenbach sends a letter out to, a memo out to, Bill Moyers, future PBS star, uh, aide to Lyndon Johnson. And just, just read that, read it and tell me if that doesn't cry out conspiracy. The public must be satisfied, Oswald was the assassin, that he had no Confederates at large. This is two hours after he was killed. There were no investigation really done at all. They're letting you know they were not going to let the truth come out. And as Russell points out, the Warren Commission, the Warren Commission just set out to have a prosecutorial brief. As Robbie noted, Arlen Specter, the people other than Alan Dulles, who gets a lot of, and he probably didn't know about it. I, I don't know that he was the engineer, but nobody, including Dulles, on the Warren Commission itself did very much work at all. That was one of Harold Weisberg's great contributions. He pointed out that uh, the, the, the junior counsel, Arlen Specter, Wesley Liebler, David Bellin, these are the ones that did all the work. You know, they, I think Gerald Ford attended like or Richard Russell, who was the most open minded member of the commission. I think he attended like eight sessions or something like that. He was barely involved. So those are the ones that we need to look to. And unfortunately, uh, they're all gone. Except I think Howard Willens is somehow still alive. who's like the, the head of the council, but he's the only one that I know of. But but unfortunately, again, nobody nobody asked these questions. The House Select Committee on Assassinations, which that was what our group, Citizens Committee of Inquiry, Lane's group, 
that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to lobby Congress and the media to try to get a, a new investigation in Congress, which happened, but it certainly wasn't any kind of investigation either. It started out good, but we, we familiar story. We know what happened here. But that's what I would tell the public is that a crime has never been investigated. So when the media come out and say, what's new? There's nothing. That's what Mark Lane used to say. What's wrong with the old evidence? The, the, the old evidence shows that Oswald didn't do it. So we don't need any new evidence. We may not ever be able to get any new evidence. So many things have been withheld. But uh, I don't know. That's kind of a long convoluted answer to it. But it's it's hard to distill it down to concisely for the public. And I tried some years ago on the uh, education forum out of London uh, to write a consensus statement. William probably remembers that. And, you know, you, you can go find it out there, you know, cause just to try to show that, hey, we stand behind this. And it was very brief. I don't know, a couple sentences, basically. I can't remember what I wrote, but it was basically to say that, you know, that uh, there was never been an investigation of the crime, an honest investigation of the, of the assassination conducted. These, the evidence, what evidence that we have that hasn't been lost or destroyed or whatever, shows that this chief suspect, Lee Harvey Oswald, couldn't have done it, whoever did it. And I would start from there and say, you know, we know, we know they lied and they're still covering it up. So let's find out why. We, we were talking about the hole in the windshield and the cleaning of the limousine. And would they, would they have done that had they known? I, uh, I was uh, writing a book for one of the Secret Service agents in Kennedy's detail. Uh, his name was Joe Paolella. And unfortunately, Joe was in his early 90s when I was doing this, and I didn't get the book done before he passed. Um, but I did uh, get some of his writing materials that he sent me uh, for the book, and I did spend two hours with him uh, in a hotel room in California when I was there to do uh, some kind of gig that they flew me up for, and Joe happened to live in the area, so I do have two hours of him on video, and he uh, he was the guy that was put in charge of guarding the limousine after they brought it back to um, to the garage, and he told me that there was still was still there was still blood, there was still brain matter, there was still pieces of hair, and he said that there was indeed a hole in the windshield. He said, I can't remember whether the glass was on the inside or on the outside, but he said, I do know that there was a hole in the windshield. Um, we we had this two-hour conversation. And he wasn't overly happy with Clint Hill and Gerald Blaine, who he felt had said some things in, in uh, I think it was the detail that he took issue with. And he wanted to set the record straight, and I was going to help him do that. Um, one thing he told me, I pushed him toward the end of the two hours. And I said, you know, because he, he said, you know, we all loved Kennedy. Kennedy was was terrific. And I said, well, OK, you've told me that you love Kennedy. Um, but I said, at the end of the day, Joe, you guys didn't do your job. He got killed. <laughs> he said, well, let me put it in a football terminology, William. You practice and you practice and you practice for the big day of the game. And every practice goes terrific. Everything is great. He says, day of the big game, not so good. <laughs> <laughs> now, Joe wasn't there doing that at the time. He was, he was, I think, guarding 
uh, Jackie Kennedy at El Tolka. But um, he told me a lot of stuff that they, the Secret Service agents did. And uh, um, maybe we don't want to hear that, but how he, how they practiced the schooling they got, that sort of thing. It was absolutely fascinating. Someday I'll release that. I mean, how many times do you get an opportunity to really sit down one-on-one -on -one with a Secret Service agent that was in Kennedy's detail? I kind of want to know some of the training now that you've mentioned it. Well, they went to, you know, they went and learned how to, you know, use their weapons and that sort of thing. Here's a little thing that, that most people don't know. He said, you know, we got, I can't remember the amount. I think it was like $10, $15 a day. Could have been less. And they had a certain hotel that they stayed at, all of them for the most part, when they were in certain areas and, and doing training and stuff. And he said, you know, we would get our meals and things and the guys that would uh, do this on a regular basis would take the few dollars that was left over. They would take that and they would invest it in the stock market. He said a lot of those guys did pretty well. He said, I wish I would have done that. And uh, just, just details like that, that you don't, you don't hear, you know, from these guys and uh, on Kennedy's womanizing, he wanted to stay away from, from the womanizing angle of Kennedy he said, I want to say something positive about the president. He says, but you know, those guys that are critical of Kennedy for, you know, having all these women, he said, listen, none of these guys, none of them were angels. And that includes me. <laughs> I just found, I just found his honesty just, you know, amazing. Well, he was, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, mentioning what, Don said about Lifton um, and his passing, uh, what kind of occurred to me was that, I mean, I talked to Lifton briefly through emails and stuff like that, but he was kind of very kind of closed off and it seemed like he was working on this. Everything was going up into this next big project. And I go, now I think Matt gets his archives or some of the files that he left behind, but I go, how long is it going to take for him to be able to put that in order to where Lifton was? And I started realizing it's like, we all go on our independent research in our heads and we're all doing our own stuff and no one can understand exactly what you're thinking and how you're thinking about the assassination. It takes forever. Even if you leave a blog or details to be able to put that all together. So then it's gone. What, what happens then? Then everyone else goes on to a different path, like much like every other researcher. And I start going, even with a podcast, you can't do that with a podcast. It might be a log to, you know, be out on the internet for others to see as well too. But how do we get the public to slowly catch up to us on the discussion? instead of investigating or spending all their time into it. And that is just by laying out simple questions or laying out simple things. I mean, I have a put up on the show before something very, very important, which is Hoover's conversation with LBJ, where he says, did, did, you got that guy, Jack Ruby. And he's like, yeah, he goes, he wants to, wants to go to Washington so he can take a polygraph exam. And he goes, do you trust? He goes, no, those things are, and he literally lays out how the polygraph test is bullshit. And I'm like, that didn't come out until 2014 by the Innocence Project, that they exposed all these people that were wrongfully convicted based on a polygraph test. So that means that the public knew that, that those things worked, but behind closed doors, they knew they didn't. So you got to think how many people might have just said the truth because they figured the thing hooked up to them is going to find out the truth anyway, or how did they manipulate it to be able to incarcerate people that were telling the truth, but say that they were lying. And that is, 
I mean, you can get the public in on that discussion and people can understand that. And then you can start pointing to open it up with the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You, you brought up the uh, because Jack Ruby's testimony before the Warren Commission. I mean, he's begging to be that. That was one of the first things that grabbed my attention. You know, when I actually started reading the hearings and exhibits myself, because most of the testimony is really boring. William can tell. I mean, I, I say Russell, Russell has read it too. Most of it is is just terrible. It's 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 irrelevant. It's page after page of padding the record of asking where did you go to school, when did you get married, nonsense. And a lot of times they're not even witnesses to anything, and they didn't call a lot of relevant witnesses. But in Ruby's case, and I think I'm the only one that ever I, I read all the original press. Nobody else seemed to get this, but I found when I was looking at his testimony, writing hidden history. There's a little a, a tidbit in there from from Earl Warren where he just basically says, well, you know, Mr. Ruby, we, we if it hadn't been for your sister contacting us, we wouldn't have bothered you to testify. So, I mean, they're telling you if his sister basically hadn't added, yeah, can you get Jack Ruby to testify? He would never have testified before. The, I mean, just think of what kind of an investigation. And you're not even going to have the guy that, that killed the alleged suspect, but he's begging the entire time. I, I can tell the truth here. You can get more out of me. If I can just go to Washington and Warren Warren's run, oh, well, you know, there's a lot involved in that, Mr. Ruby, and all this stuff. He goes, well, you've done it for other witnesses. He goes, yeah, but this, you know, the witness aren't Ruby. I mean, it's it's fascinating to read. And anybody that, and to me, Jack Ruby, he dropped so many conspiratorial chestnuts. You know, and then, of course, the video of him saying, hey, Jack, are they're great uh, after, during his trial, are they're, they're, they're high, are these powerful people in the government that are involved in this? Yes. You know, he's saying there's a conspiracy, so... Uh, he talked. They, people say no one, someone would have talked. Well, there's there's one of the many who did talk, and it's Jack Ruby. He's a pretty instrumental player here. Is that Jack Ruby and Dare Sheriff Bill Decker? The interview you're talking about? No, this is the one. That, uh, I don't know who's. It's some kind of some reporters are talking. He's sitting outside the uh, during his trial. I think it was during his trial, maybe after his trial, and they're saying, "Hey, Jack, uh, you know, the." Are you, he said he basically has a statement. The people that have so much who 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 led me to my acts or something like that. I I got the I don't have the exact words in front of me. Uh, they have so much to lose by me coming forward, or you know basically doing anything they can. Yeah, you got it about right, Don. I think you got it right. Yeah, yeah. And so he said, and they said, Jack, is this or is it, are these? Uh, the reporter says, are these very powerful people in the government. He says, yes. So I mean, yeah. it's you know, it's so yeah, I'm sure. And so Russell's seen it, yeah. Yeah, I've seen it and read his testimony. Okay, has it popped up yet? That it? Uh, no, I think in no, the, in the clip so. he's he's kind of leaning back in his seat. And I think it's in color it's, too. It's a color clip too. I think is he not leaning back it's... in his seat? Oh, maybe. Okay, it's a bit. Uh... I don't. I will not go into that except that he lets me believe in the origin. Genesis. No, that's not it. That's not. I didn't know he talked about the origin of Genesis. No, I never yeah, saw the way that. he talks. It's weird, isn't it? Is he high? No, he talked a lot about. You know, we mentioned earlier about uh, people saying the Jews, but he talked a lot about that too. Where he would, you have to kind of discard some of his testimony because he basically he mentions that in his testimony too. And I don't know where that was coming from, but it's it's. I don't think it's relevant to this. But this one, he's just. It's very simple. It's short, and he's sitting. And uh, there's uh, cameras there, and there's other, maybe more than one we're asking him, but I, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure it's out there, but I, I don't know where you'd find it. There's a, I mean, there's a 
couple videos I've seen of Ruby, but the, his official death in his autopsy, it wasn't cancer, was it? It was something else. No, he said it was cancer. And that's another thing is that Ru Ruby, you know, and William knows about this. There was a, a letter smuggled out of prison. Now, Penn Jones said that. So was it written by Ruby? I don't know. You know, some people say yes, some people know, but he goes into and he talks very in great depth about Johnson and the others conspiring to kill Kennedy. But he talks about he made allegations that uh, cancer cells had been injected into him. Yeah. Joyon West is the psychiatrist that administered a flu shot, and he's tied to Charles Manson and Jack Ruby and Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. So he was ahead of his time. You know, that now that's it's probably believed by most of the conspiracy world that you can do that. But he, he certainly went very fast. So he said, you know, he, he got sick very fast and boom. Well, in two weeks, they gave him 126 x-rays. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are if you're doing that with 1960s radiology equipment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure I've got his autopsy report somewhere. I've also got slides from the autopsy, so I can have a look at that. I've seen his psychiatric records when he started going crazy. And if you look at the bottom of every single one of those psychiatric records, it's Joyon West's signature on there. But Joyon West, there's no mark of him on any of the CIA archives, websites, any documentation about the guy in general. He was a UCLA professor. Um, one of the people that talked about taking those LSD experiments out into the field that kind of led into the Operation Midnight Climax stuff. So it's like, whatever you see, you just see these strange coincidences everywhere. Like another strange coincidence is look at the FBI director, Hoover. His name is not only popping up with the Fred Hampton assassination, popping up with MLK, popping up with RFK, popping up with JFK. His name's all over the board. Where I'm like, I mean, it's is it suspicious that this guy was the director the whole entire time? I mean, that, no, he lived a long career. But if you look at all the projects that had his sign off on Operation, uh, what Co COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO and, yeah. So you just got so many things where you go, I don't put it above him to be doing the worst things possible. I mean, he wanted to be the world police in a sense, hence our invasion into many Latin American countries. Wait a minute. I know you have, you have something to say. I don't, I don't want to keep hogging it up here. No, well, I was just going to say, you know, we, we know that, I mean, again, one of the, one of the most amazing things, and I, I haven't heard anybody in the Congressional Black Caucus upset about it, but I mean, there's basically they, the FBI through King sent, I mean, through uh, Hoover sent a letter to Martin Luther King basically saying, hey, King, you know, there's only one, there's only one thing left for you to do. Basically, you said, you know, you need to kill yourself. Or the inference was, or we'll do it for you. And I think they did. But uh, so, I mean, it's out there. And you, you mentioned Fred Hampton. We know that Fred Hampton's bodyguard was an undercover government agent. We know that Malcolm X's bodyguard was an undercover agent. And we know that the guy cradling Martin Luther King's head in his hands on the Lorraine, the balcony of the Lorraine Motel was a CIA agent. He's still alive, as a matter of fact. And there have been articles about that, talking about it. So you talk about curious connections. Why do all these public figures have undercover government agents around them? You know, and then they get killed. Anyhow, it's pretty, pretty strange. Well, I think it's easier for the public to get there when you talk about the MLK was probably assassinated by some type of conspiracy like that. But for some reason, the JFK assassination has just been like a brick wall or something that the public feels like they just can't get there just because he's the president. I'm like, I mean, if you tackle it from maybe the soft on communism aspect, everything Kennedy was really talking about could be seen as soft on communism in a sense. I mean, working about getting the FDA to be more accountable in the products that they sell and the damage that it's doing to people, um, the education system, civil rights, for instance, all great things. But the fact that wasn't the times back then, I mean, 
it's like a three strike policy. I know Bay of Pigs usually gets mentioned at one of them, but the fact is how many people were willing to go along with this whole idea of a low nut? How many people were okay with manipulating autopsy evidence? Um, things that obviously the mob can't control, which I know everyone usually says, you know, the mob is involved. I'm sure at some points, I think it was a grand conspiracy. I just don't think you needed to get 10,000 people in on it. I think you only needed a couple of the top honchos and everyone else just starts following orders. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it, well, yeah, and, that, and that's when, when so many people say that it's, and I hear this all the time, someone would have talked to me, it's, you know, you don't, most people are followers. We know that most human beings are followers. And especially if your paycheck depends on it. So if J. Edgar Hoover is leading, who, however involved he was in the assassination to kill Kennedy, we know he led the cover-up. I mean, God, how, uh, Harold Weisberg alone talked all the time about how not only would, when he would trudge into court, that's where I eventually ended up meeting him because he was in D.C. So I, I said, hey, I'll come pick you up in D.C. I'm, you know, you're my hero. And OK, of course, you know, and then I got to witness him drinking his little portable, you know, <laughs> liquor bottles and being smoking cigarettes and bad mouthing all the other critics. Very grumpy guy. But it was but he he would go in there to file Freedom of Information Act suits. Right. So uh, and he was trying to unearth these documents, primarily from the FBI. And he was the one who talked about it. he would publish them in postmortem in his other books. And you would say, wow, God, they, you know, they, I know something about Xerox machines. These what they were doing is they were Xeroxing these things over and over again to make them as illegible as possible. And that's when they weren't redacting everything. So they were acting like they were covering something up, even if they weren't. But he was the obvious architect of that. So, you know, whether he was uh, involved, I, I don't know, probably, but he's like, like Johnson, both of them. I mean, Hoover would have rejoiced. Hoover hated the Kennedys, so he, it's not like he would have objected to it on moral grounds. No, you can't do that. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, I, I would call him the architect of the cover-up. You know, when you mentioned why can't we get through on the JFK assassination, to most people today, JFK is a movie. It's uh, especially to younger people. That and hurts older hearing people. that. That hurts hearing that. Well. You know, I'm not one to shy away from the truth. And uh, that's the truth. I think, I think, especially with young people, JFK is a movie and it's fun to play with. Even people that are in to this and go to the conferences and things, it's become sort of a game. It's like, uh, you know, forget JFK as a person, a living, breathing human being that was taken from his wife and his children and his, his family, his relatives. Uh, it's kind of a nice little game that we, which shot, you know, where the, did the headshot come from and who did what and what was this person doing on that day? It's really kind of gone to that level. Now, you know, I took it serious from the beginning and I still do. And there's a lot of us that do, but um, within the community, I think it's more or less devolved into this, you know, um, thing that that is more a more a game and more fun to guess at what happened than you know it, it would be to dig up the real truth people get scared when you start saying well you know the government was behind this and this you know people don't want to think about that they don't want to think about that maybe the government is uh you know isn't what we grew up thinking it was you know that that there is a dark underbelly to America. It scares a lot of people. 
And I think that's why, you know, psychologically, they just don't want to deal with it. I mean, when if you hear, if you hear that Kennedy's autopsy wasn't right, something was going on, maybe they, you know, they did something to the body, you recoil from it. I know I did when I first heard that theory. But then when I started delving into it and actually talking to the people that were involved, you can't come to any other conclusion. I mean, not if you've got your eyes open, not if you're looking for the truth, so to speak. You know, it's uh, it's pretty scary to think that as cynical as my old man was and as cynical as I am, he was more right in his thinking um, than I had been, even as a young guy. So, um, you know, and I'm still battling that. I mean, I'm working on a book right now that I'm about to finish up where I've spent off and on 17 years uh, delving into Robert Kennedy's assassination. And um, we got the same kind of thing going on. You know, delving into all that stuff can be pretty scary. But when you when you talk to the witnesses, when you actually sit face to face with them, um, you can't come to any other conclusion that that we weren't told the truth in either one of those cases. Russell, do you have any moments when you were making your book about medical um, evidence? Did you have any moments where you recoiled back, like something that just seemed like it was like, you, I don't know, you couldn't get there or it was just something that was very, very, I mean, medical evidence in general, any manipulation is kind of messed up. Do you know, do you know I probably had lots of those moments um, just to, uh, um, while we were talking, I remembered one was um, when I found out, and I'm sure this is not, I'm not the only person who knows this, but to find out that the, um, the team who looked at the forensic pathology in the um, for the HSCA, the forensic pathology panel, um, they they spent very little time looking at the evidence, um, days, you know, not weeks, days, and three of them found the time to look at the MLK evidence as well, and on that they only spent a few days. I think it was five days. So to find that, you know, suddenly they had stuff that's taken. A lifetime for some people to understand and certainly William would have spent years on it um I know I've spent years on it um and and they wrapped it up for both the cases in a few days that was kind of surprising um was there a time crunch on a lot of these investigations I feel like if you're doing the investigation into a president which the Warren Commission was supposed to be you wouldn't want it to be out as quickly as possible but instead they they went pretty fast through it even though they added a lot of fluff to it like jack ruby's mother's dental records um and yeah uh, sure there was there was a time pressure on on both the investigations but that you know the 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 forensic pathology panel for the hsca probably had a year um until their final report came out and yet they didn't spend anything like that and it it became clear to me why they didn't is because they weren't funded so you can't have nine forensic pathologists on the the day rate that they were on being paid by the US government to spend as long as they like looking at the evidence. They just couldn't do that. And I asked Cyril Wecht, you know, do you remember getting paid for this? He said, no, I only got paid expenses. Some of the other doctors did get paid um, some small amounts, you know, hundreds of dollars, but um, they certainly had to do their day jobs. Um, that's where they earned their money. And um, And when you look at the record, they spent most of their time when they looked at the Kennedy and the MLK evidence at weekends. 
So they would they would do their week the week's work and then they'd fly to Washington a couple of times to get together and then they'd fly home again on the Sunday. So uh, that was surprising as well. Is that something you needed to investigate on your own or is that public information? It, it's public information if you if you look beyond the the HSCA report and the HSCA volumes, you have to go into the archives for it. So it is available to other people. Um, but, you know, I, I flat out asked Cyril Wecht about it and I asked uh, Michael Barden about it. And they were very honest with me. The reason I ask that is because there's some stuff that seems like it's buried and it takes a while for researchers to come across until you end up seeing it on a site. But as long as, I mean, it, it, it for me, it's just like, people talk about oh their testimony was buried in the 26 volumes or it was buried whatever in the warren commission and i'm just like why did they even include it in there you can take an interview and then just toss it out and just be like i got their interview and then just not include it in the final volumes but they were they just buried it in there which makes it even weirder it's like you had all the power in the world to destroy manipulate i mean look at the bottom of 1035 960 the warren commission countering the critics of it which says destroy when no longer needed right at the bottom of it it's like you could have easily just not put it in there or chose not to talk to witnesses which they did i think there's um Who's the lady at the book depository building that talked about giving change to Oswald for a Coke? And as she was doing that, shots rang out. Carolyn Arnold, Carolyn Walter. What are those two? I think it was, it was one of the Carolyn Arnold. Yeah. But Rob, Robbie, you, you, your point about the, the Ray, and I've, I've made this point many times that they were, they were trying to pad the record. So they put, they threw everything they could in there because they knew, as Alan Dulles said in his famous meeting, you know, no, no one will read it. this. No one reads it. A few scholars, you know, the American. And that was then. Imagine if you're putting out this record today. That's what Americans did read compared to we know as writers how few how fewer uh, book <laughs> book readers are out there now. You know, we have a much smaller audience to, that we're that we're trying to market to. But uh, but they basically and I, I you mentioned Vincent Slander earlier. And he was, he's one of my favorite. Critics. I wish I had been able to meet him. I know he just died 90 some years old last year or whatever, but. Never wrote a book for some reason, but wrote lots of great articles. But he was very influential in my belief. I always wondered, to me, it just seemed so obvious. The conspiracy was so obvious that this this official story just falls apart. You know, just you just you know kind of unravel one thing and it just unravels right. You know, it's it's so obvious. It's not not constructed well at all. And I thought, well, these are these are big conspirators. These are people from intelligence agencies, the Pentagon. You think maybe professional assassins. Certainly, they could do a better job of that, but he's the first one to point out that they wanted, they did it this way on purpose. They wanted the public to know there was a conspiracy, and they did, because it, I, it took me decades of, you know, talking and ranting and raving to people about the single bullet. How could it possibly have zigzagged in seven wounds? And, and then I held it in my hands in the National Archives as a teenager. I got to go there and see all the evidence that when I was with Mark Lane's group. And, uh, you know, it's, it's basically pristine. It looks identical to the same uh, ammunition fired in cotton wadding, which you can find in the commission's exhibits. Again, they put it there because they wanted you to see it if you pick the time to look for it. But how many people like us, you know, very, very few other people are going to do that. But I, it took me a long time to realize, well, you know, OK, obviously this bullet was planted. It didn't hit Kennedy and Connolly. But why would you plant a bullet that looked like it didn't hit anything? Would you have taken the time to make it look like it hit something? Well, no, they didn't do that. They put it there on purpose because they wanted controversy. And really, the the magic bullet is that's like the cornerstone of conspiracy belief, right? So uh, 
I think they wanted us to know. And, uh, you know, it's it's almost like Jack the Ripper, you know, taunting the London police by, you know, right, writing them and everything. I think that they like doing this because they know no matter how obvious they, they make it, the vast majority of people are not going to do it. I mean, I argue with it. I thought you, you talk about these things and they just give you a look. You know, I was, I was arguing about the, my friend Bob Wilson, William's friend too, was a, got sucked into one of these online groups on Facebook and was talking again about stuff that I don't argue with anymore about single bullet theory. It's ridiculous. Uh, anybody that's studied this at all knows it's impossible. But he was talking about the number of grams that were missing from the bullet. And were there more grams than that in uh, Connolly's um, uh, wrist which or thigh or so? And, and there was, clearly. But so we started arguing about that. And they're, well, how do you know? And it's just... I, I can't do that because if you're not understanding how significant that is, if you if you look at that bullet and think that it caused seven wounds, let alone where it entered, you know, if the, we have the the evidence. You're talking about evidence, even though they destroyed so much evidence. You have the evidence of JFK's clothing, his shirt and his coat, and you have the autopsy face sheet, the original one signed by uh, Boswell. You have the uh, Seabed O'Neill report, the FBI agents, and you have the uh, the death certificate that was signed by Berkeley, all saying it was about five and a half inches down below on the back. So that alone, obviously, somebody shooting above and behind cannot hit somebody five and a half inches below the the, the uh, neck and have it come out the throat and go on. So I, I stress that kind of evidence because it, it's irrefutable. It's not theory. There's no theory. That's what the evidence shows. And uh, so I, I get tired, I guess, of arguing these things. But if you, if I can't get somebody to understand that, and unfortunately, there's lots of people now you can't. I'm sure William knows too that you can't get to. You know, and Bob was trying to argue with some of these people. I said, you know, I, I just, I'm not going to waste my time if if you if you really think that that bullet could have, you know, not to mention zigzagging and all that. If it, it caused seven wounds and it came out looking like that, it was fired from above, and it entered a much lower. Than where it exited? I mean, how how do you argue that? it's impossible? Well, the Warren Commission in their model, the scale to make that fit was that they had the arrow going this way up against the head. So it was like coming from a downward angle, which wouldn't make sense if it was fired from a building from above. The House Select Committee was the only one that had it going um, in an upward direction. But so one of them is wrong. And the, the, the weird thing to me is, is that the history books teach the Warren Commission, but they don't even talk about the HSCA, even if the HSCA was a bunk investigation in the first place. You don't get any mention of the Clark panel either. And you just kind of get in this aspect of like, so who was following orders and who was just a problem in the way? And I think you see that with the House Select Committee on Assassinations, their funding running out, um, time restraints on things as well, too. Certain people that were obviously cherry picked to be able to agree with the official party line, I would say. I mean, I think they were twisted uh, their wrist a little bit with the aspect of there's a probable conspiracy. Um, I think that was just that was like a the last ditch effort type situation but i've saw blakey request for documents and i talked to him about it when i had him on the show they weren't giving him everything and i think now he realizes that but also the same thing stokes total told him before he went into his investigation maintain the reputation of these people as if they were alive which is like kennedy all this stuff which i'm like nobody talks about any of the crazy stuff, the scandals, any of that type of stuff, because it's like keeping this reputation in there. And he brought up a really good point about um, RFK, the whole family, the JFK family, the dirt. It's like two people holding guns at each other's head. You know, if you say this, you why, why were they silent for so long? And it was well, like, I, well, I, I, Robbie, I would, and I've written a lot about this. One thing I agree with Jim D. Eugenio on, I was doing it before him, 
but uh, <laughs> he wrote the posthumous assassination of John F. Kennedy. And uh, there has been really anti-Kennedy uh, rhetoric everywhere. There's a lot of hatred for the Kennedy. For instance, RFK, it still gets out there. And I don't know if Blakey was uh, alluding to that or not. There are still people out there that say RFK uh, limited what could be done at the autopsy because they didn't want his, you know, Addison's disease exposed or I don't know what. Or maybe they could tell how much sex he'd been having with Marilyn Monroe. I don't, I don't know what the reason would have been, but that, that's but that's out there. And in reality, uh, Weisberg published the, uh, the the consent form where, and it says right on there, that the autopsy consent form Robert F. Kennedy signed for it and said no limitations. So there were no limitations. Say so, but so th- what happens is the Kennedy family is blamed for a lot of this, that they're blamed for the missing brain. Uh, I, I don't think that's fair either, although it is weird, I admit. But it's very convenient to do that. And again, that plays into the Kennedy hatred out there. And I I wrote a lot about this in, in history, how the same press that refused to talk to any of us, any of these young teenagers that were trying to talk about the single bullet theory and the umbrella man, the bushcalating and all this stuff that were, that were the unnatural deaths of witnesses, they they thought we were crazy. But Judith Campbell Exeter comes out of the web, out of the uh, Whitworth in her giant oversized sunglasses and calls a press conference. The original press conference, by the way, she never mentioned the mafia one time, which became the cornerstone of her theory. You talk about Judith Barry Baker. She's got nothing on Judith Campbell Exeter. She said nothing about it. And she just started talking about how, you know, the Kennedys run with the mob, uh, Giancana and Roselli, who, of course, both would be you know knocked off before they were contested by for the HSCA. But this the same press accepted that critically. They never questioned her critically. They accepted everything she said. And now the same so-called liberal media that poo-poos any assassination conspiracies, they accept everything. All that stuff came, much as like so much of the anti-Oswald stuff came from Ruth Payne. So much of the anti-Kennedy stuff came from Judith Campbell Exeter and mafia type CIA sources. Oh, the old man, the old Joe was a, was a bootlegger. Bobby Kennedy Jr. does a great job of destroying that in his book, Family Values, which is a wonderful book. People should read. He he goes into a lot of these mythical things. Did you know, for instance, old Joe Kennedy, who they hate so much, he he was part of the first commission to look into the CIA during the 1950s. I learned about that from RFK Jr. And he was the first person to recommend. He he was warned. This is the dad. He warned against the CIA and said, "Hey, you know, we need to take away all these extracurricular things they're doing." And uh, nobody knows that. Instead, oh, he was a bootlegger. Oh, he you know he. He got Mayor Daley to rig Illinois in 1960. These are all things that are based on on mafia or CIA sources or Judith Campbell Extra. But I, I know I'm kind of all over the place, but that's that's what I tend to do. So hopefully people get something out of that. Well, welcome to Out of the Blank. That's kind of how the show goes, too. Um, I think my whole point was it just it's weird to me that I never see any of these guys going on news networks and you know RFK Jr., any of them just talking about wanting these documents getting released or things of these sorts. I mean, I saw him in the Oliver Stone, the new film, but there's just a a lot of like silence on a lot of it. And I don't know if they were doing their own investigation behind private closed doors. And that's what I mentioned. I was like, is this like a scenario that we have? Like when I mentioned scandals, it's like Hoover never acknowledging the mob. Is it possible that he was betting at the horse race or did he have pictures of him in a dress? Now I've seen the pictures in a dress, so I I can't verify those. (laughs) They are interesting. He does look like a pretty woman, but (laughs) you get down to the the main aspect of it is, is that was there a bunch of blackmail going on? And that is why they kept silent for so long, because I feel like there is that aspect of this when it comes into politics is there's a lot of kind of 
things going on behind the curtains, whether it's blackmail, whether it's scandals or whatever you want to say. And I feel like I don't know if it's this idea of reputations. And I bring the same thing with the agencies as well, too. I mean, everything you look at from Dallas police not knowing Jack Ruby that the Warren Commission felt like they needed to put in there. Could it be because Jack Ruby couldn't have police connections? Well, why is that? Well, doesn't that make your Dallas Police Department look pretty freaking corrupt? So I just think there's these really kind of easier roads to take when it comes to, you know, protecting the agency's value of whatever the hell that means. But it all kind of got whitewashed or not whitewashed. It got washed away when Watergate happened. And we all started seeing the horrible things that these agencies were doing. You know, a lot of this stuff comes because there are a lot of people out there that that had something to do with this that could have come forward with what they knew. Take Cybert and O'Neill, the FBI agents. It went up when I interviewed them. We were talking about the single bullet theory. I had both of them tell me in separate interviews, same words, the single bullet theory did not happen. Cybert said, I stood two feet from that back wound. He said that back wound was too low in the back to come up and go out his throat. Um, and if, if you've destroyed the single bullet theory, if it didn't happen, you've got more than one shooter. Did they ever come forward? Did they ever? No. They, the only reason, you know, this is the, the joy for me of, of going out and, and getting firsthand information from a person that's still with us. You know, because I managed over a long period of time to get the information I needed, but I had to I had to really go out and bust it to, to get it. And these guys were never going to come forward on their own and say, no, the single bullet theory didn't happen. You know why they weren't going to do that? Because it comes back to it comes back to money. It comes back to their families. It comes back to reputation. Um, number one, they don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to lose their pension. They don't want to have it interfere with their lives. They don't want their families messed with. Um, that, that's why some of these people don't come forward. It's a, it's a CYA operation uh, when it comes down to that. They got to cover their asses. A lot of these people grasp that that it wasn't right that Kennedy had been killed um, by conspiracy, but they aren't going to risk anything. You know, they, these were young guys or middle-aged guys at the time. They're not going to risk anything. They're, you know, where where are they going to go once they do that? Once they come out, they'll be branded a nut. The the higher-ups will make their lives a living hell. Look at what happened to Hosty. You know, Hosty got, <laughs> Hosty got sent to Kansas City, which was the death knell for an FBI agent that wanted any kind of any kind of promotion. He never got promoted again, you know? And that's just because, you know, Hoover thought he'd screwed up. And Cyber told me himself, he said, if I would have voiced my opinion in that autopsy room, he said, I, the next trip I would have taken would have been to Butte, Montana through a, through a thunderstorm with, you know, hail coming down. They knew very well what would happen to them. You know, if they if they said anything, there are a lot of people. Well, I don't know about a lot of people 60 years later, but but there were people all through this thing that could have told what they knew, but they weren't going to do it. And that includes the autopsy doctors themselves. I interviewed uh, a guy that knew them both well, Humes and Boswell and Payne. And I said, if if they knew there was a conspiracy or they were asked to do something to further that, 
um, by a higher up, would they do it? And he looked me right in the eyes and without hesitation said, yes, they would. They were in the military. And he said, you don't question orders. You follow orders. And if you have a problem with it, you might bitch about it a little bit later, but you'll follow the order no matter what. It is. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what it came down to. Well, you're both, you're kind of improving my point about getting the public in on the discussion. They can silence one person, but can they silence everyone when everyone's questioning and wanting release of documents? It's kind of catching up the public into that aspect as well, too. The weird thing that's happened, and there's this idea out there that the government's incompetent, and I don't think that is true at all. I think they're successful in exactly what they do. If you look at the Kennedy assassination, the people that were around to cover up a lot of the things that we see as cover-ups, are they allow are they around to be able to pay the price whenever it gets exposed? No. But what has happened is it's got the public and many other researchers fighting amongst each other. To the point where even if they all believe conspiracy, they can't get over the basic hump of like, here's the common ground. There's we know there's conspiracy, but then there's the who there's the minute details that everyone kind of separates on. And it's why I can't get like a 50 panel together because everyone's got a little bit of differences. That's successful in my mind. I mean, you're, you're distorting the public's, I guess, perception of the whole case in general to the point where now the general public won't even have a discussion about it without rolling out their eyes. And you, you can look at their failures. I think there's plenty of failures that you could point at the Bay of Pigs. But who took the rap for the Bay of Pigs? JFK did. Did the agency? Did Eisenhower? Did whoever instructed the plot in the first place take the damage for that? No. So that's the thing is like this idea of incompetence. And then the people that do speak out, the people that want to tell the truth, um, what do they get labeled as? Nut jobs or, oh, that's just one wacko because the official story is a certain way. And, you know, you've interviewed these people, William. You know what they've said. You've talked to them. You've seen their empathy in their eyes. You've been able to, you know, tell, I guess, see if they're telling the truth or not. And you can see that, obviously, when you mentioned to me on your episode, when you're watching at the conference and JFK pops up on the screen in front of everybody, and people start crying and you realize how it hurts these people that they have to kind of relive this thing over and over and over again. And it's like, that's what do you do when you disable their credibility, which the everyone's out there who believes the official story likes to do? I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's like a two way street. You know, you can if you have a group of people saying one thing, they'll silence one person that's saying maybe something that might be the opposite, but might have some weight to it. Robbie, I'd like to build on something that William said before we go any further about uh, uh, Jim Humes. Uh, I think he he was definitely ordered to do the autopsy and he had to do it because he had to protect his position and his pension and his reputation. Uh, and if you look at all the other people that were involved in the autopsy, they just passed it down to their um, inferiors, if you like. So if you look at... Um, Ebersole, who was in charge of the x-rays, he didn't do the x-rays, did he, William? Who did the x-rays? It was Custer. Girl, and, girl, it was Custer. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he, he ordered other people to do it, and he said, that is exactly what Humes would have done. He wouldn't have taken on the job. He would have ordered his best person to do it, or the next person down the line. He was ordered to do it because they knew that he would protect his pension and his seniority and his position. I'm well, sure in another way, another way to look at it too, which I never thought of before. I, I talked to Bill Lynch, who knew these guys, and I interviewed. He said, "Say that they wanted Humes and Boswell 
wanted to tell the truth and they wanted to say, yeah, there was a conspiracy and I helped cover it up. Who, who were they going to tell? Where were they going to go? You've got the president of the United States that may be in on it. You don't know who to trust. And all you know is that you've been told to do this. The president of the United States is dead. Where are you going to go with that information? Who are you going to tell? What's going to happen to you once you tell it? They knew very well. Yeah. And they weren't going to tell anybody. They and and they just did they did the best they could, perhaps, uh, on the night with the limited experience they had, um, without passing it down to any of their inferiors, and therefore they had to protect themselves. And this is why it's it's so sad that the, the performance of the media, because the only the only ones as you mentioned about protecting the pensions, whether it's FBI agents or anyone else, uh, and look at even today. Look at when's the last time a whistleblower came forth on anything significant and was lauded as a hero, was embraced. They're punished. They're rejected by the press. Most of the people don't support them, and so we see. So I mean, it, and that's at every level. If you're if you're just in a company, and you say, "Hey, I saw you know the boss is doing this and that," I, you know, the world comes down and you. Nobody appreciates it. You go to your local media, and the local media, I know, will be just as reluctant to report something like that. As they would be, you know, the New York Times to tell the truth about the CIA or something, just doesn't happen. But if at the time, if the, if you had had Tom Wicker and all the other big reporters that were Dan Rather, the young reporter out of Dallas that made a name, you know, lying about which way the president's head went when he saw the Zapruder film, uh, Walter Cronkite, all these people at that time, Huntley Brinkley, if they had done some investigating, then it it, it would have unraveled. Then Dr. Humes and uh, James Hosty and all these people, they could have felt comfortable in coming forward. They're protected by, you know, these big, powerful, uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, NBC, CBS, but they knew they were in on it. NBC signed an agreement. I put published it in Hidden History. I think two days after the assassination, an agreement to publish only information that was consistent with the FBI report on the assassination. That was at the very beginning. So they said, one of the three major networks said, we're not going to do any investigating. And the other networks did nothing either. Everything we know about it, all the stuff we're talking about is because those citizen activists, Mark Waynes, Harold Weisberg, Vincent Salandria, Shirley Martin, who never gets talked about, but did a lot of the early work. Marguerite Oswald, who was the first conspiracy theorist, probably. Oswald's mother was the one who turned Mark Lane on before hiring him. Uh, these were the people that did all the work the press did. And if they had just jumped on it, talk about the story of the century. They didn't. Then maybe those people would feel comfortable. But even today, when I, when I wrote Hidden History, you're talking about 50 years after the event when I, I finally tracked down one of my, I, I think the most interesting people involved in the assassination was Seymour Weitzman, who was one of the two officers who, who found the alleged, the, the weapon on the sixth floor and of course signed the sworn affidavit that it was a German Mauser, just like Eugene Boone did. So legally speaking, there's no chain of possession for the Manlicker Carcano they, they traced to Oswald. So in a real courtroom, that would have been thrown out. You couldn't introduce it because there's no record for it. There's no chain of possession for it at all. It, it, it was, a, as far as legally speaking, the affidavit said it was a German Mauser. But why is it, one of the few things about the HSCA that we found is that uh, they tracked him down to a mental institution. He, he basically went crazy after the assassination. And apparently it was, the, you know, he was talking about conspiracy all the time and everything. It's like a movie. That's where he ended up his, his day. So I, he had no kids. I tracked down his nephew. Uh, I think it was Larry Weitzman. 50 years later, and he just yelled, I mean, he just kept saying, I don't know nothing, I don't know nothing, like a hundred times. I couldn't get any word in. He just kept saying that. It's like 50 years later, 
the fear is so great on the part of a nephew of a guy that only people like we even know who Seymour Weitzman is. But that's what you find. I find it with other witnesses I talk to, too. They don't want to talk. And if they do, they're, they're frightened. And it's because of, you know, very, they, they know all the people that have died, that have been died under strange circumstances. They don't want to be the next one. And sometimes it's just an economic thing. As you mentioned, I can understand all these career I mean, people like Humes and hosts, you know, they had, you know, impressive government pensions. They don't, I mean, I'm sure their wives are telling them, look, I don't get involved in this. I know from get, becoming friends with Dean Andrews uh, uh, Jr. is the lawyer's son, Dean Andrews III. And, you know, William knows we may be working on a project uh, with him recently. But I know meeting his mom, I mean, she was that way. She came over our house for dinner years ago and uh, just, you know, she didn't want to hear anything about it. I was the first one to get her to open up because for them, their life unraveled. He was a big shot lawyer. He became embroiled in this and their life was destroyed. And so people that are involved in this, it's you saw a little bit of that Oliver Stone's JFK where Garrison, you can see Garrison's wife is, you know, saying, oh, come on, he's a nice man and all this stuff. They, their, their life was unraveling. They had a good lifestyle, but because he's insisting on talking about, wait, you know, this, is, this isn't right. Why is he saying this and that? And so it's, it's, it's a rare family. I know from the people I interview all the time on a variety of subjects, so many of them, their families abandoned them. And they're left in the cold because they they had the, the courage to come forward. So it takes a lot to do that, especially when you have all these examples uh, out there. And you mentioned the Kennedy family. I talk about that many times. That what their attitude is certainly curious, and you, especially when you compare it to the attitudes of the family of Martin Luther King, where his you know Coretta Scott King, at an advanced age, traveled across state lines to testify for James Earl Ray to get a new trial. That's a profile in courage. Dexter King, uh, Martin Luther King, they were very, uh, you know, Dexter King met with him earlier, way before Robert F. Kennedy Jr. met with uh, Sirhan Surin. Now, RFK Jr. has come late to the plate, but he's he's stepping it up big time now. It's good to see. But as I wrote, I mentioned before the show, I was the first one to conduct an investigation into the death of JFK Jr. It was an assassination. No, he's not still alive, <laughs> but it was an assassination. They lied to you. And uh, there's no question, he, behind the scenes, I found that he was obsessed with his father's assassination and he was about to enter politics. He had hired, he was going to hire someone to talk, to write about the JFK assassination for George Magazine. So he wasn't going to be quiet anymore. And I know it was causing consternation between him and his sister, Caroline, and other people in the family, because they did, they wanted to keep this crazy quiet thing, which, you know, it still ended up a bunch of them dying. But so there, there were people that tried to come forward. Some of them were killed, like JFK Jr. And others, you know, are exiled. We see it around the, the world today, Assange and Snowden and Manning. I mean, these, this is what happens to people. So I, I don't blame people too much for not coming forward, because I don't know if I would. I don't know if I'd have that courage. And don't you think the money thing is also part of the reason the media don't go after it? Because it doesn't sell newspapers and magazines and television programs. Um, God knows, books don't make much money, do they? So, uh, you know, I don't know that they make much money on a magazine. And and we've got a war in Europe, the Ukraine. It very rarely make, meets, makes the front covers of our of our press much more likely to get the latest, latest Dancing on Ice or Stars in Their Eyes, you know, and this kind of stuff. Um, well, a lot so, of that uh, media manipulation, especially when it comes to modern today stuff and even back then, I think it's a, a lot of that is because, I mean, do you get anything from it? You get star witnesses. You get to see with the Warren Commission, the witnesses that the media got to talk to, exclusives and things of that sort. You know, first reactions of key players that were obviously involved or interviews with Alan Dulles or whoever. 
But I mean, even with the news today, I mean, how many times can the government just look into your phone, look into any of your other stuff, be able to pull out any little bit of dirt on you as a reporter or whoever wants to blow the story on it as well, too? I mean, there's not a lot of people out there speaking besides independent sources. And even then, it's like they're not safe either, but they just stop caring. Yeah, they don't care. And it doesn't sell it doesn't sell product. So no, it's and, and, a and business. I, well, I, I would say that, that that I think it would uh, sell if it, but the problem is you have to have someone who makes it. And I understand the reporters who don't look into these things because, again, they're making good money. Most of them, you know, certainly the national reporters are making really good money. So I can understand. I don't want to give up a, you know, maybe a seven figure salary. It's a really cushy job. I'm a celebrity. People know me. I can, maybe I get to meet movie stars. I can understand. Do I want to do that, or do I want to be ostracized? You know, if if you if you if you decide, look what happened to Oliver Stone. I mean, Oliver Stone was one in a million that that was that had the guts to do what he did because the world you read JFK, the book of the film, that shows what happened to everybody in the media. I mean, Dan rather ad- editorialized on the more, the nightly news, editorialized three different times against Oliver Stone's film before it was even made. And you saw what happened when a script was leaked to the uh, Washington Post besides by a Mockingbird media asset, Operation Mockingbird, uh, George Larder Jr. So I can understand why it, it's amazing that he's kept this up, that he's affected anything. He's going more and more radical, but there's not many people out there like that. And and it's as I said, most people are followers. So if you're not going to get, you'd have to get somebody at the top of the network to decide, like, you know, if Ted Turner was a bit of a wild card, he never was anything like that, but it would have to be somebody with a really eccentric personality, like uh, Elon Musk or somebody, somebody that would buy a network and would decide, okay, I'm going to give a green light on this stuff. And then the people blow them, if they know their big boss is doing it, then they may be eager to do it, but they're not going to do it when they know what the attitude of the people, they're just going to get fired or they get, so yeah, I, I understand it, but it's, it's still troubling that the, that we still hear them talk about a free press because they're they're definitely not we don't have a free press well i i think it's important because if you look at the number of researchers or just the number of people out there that i mean there's whistleblowers all the time i just don't think they get a platform to be able to do the things that they need to be able to accomplish i mean this idea that you know you can't you're going to be a journalist and journalists trying to get the truth out there but what's the truth if the truth is going to get you fired it's going to lose everything that you own i mean that's it's not media that i guess does the reporting i mean did it ever do the reporting like that that's the real question i mean is the media today this similar to the media that was 50 years ago 100 years ago or however when they first started reporting on things i mean i think now we have more i guess a closer eye on a lot of the stuff that the government does but i think it also gets pushed away from the actual people that should be responsible i'm not saying deep state i'm just saying when you hear everything get reported about a scandal now it immediately goes to right wing or left wing and that's the only way that they can get to talk about it i think that's important at least they're kind of talking about it but it doesn't go into like okay but what's the overall issue there you know what i mean like if you look at the whole government structure as a whole well robbie and that's you've got a great point because the one the one probably uh the biggest thing trump left our society was this fake news thing because once he said fake news everybody uses it now so the problem is how do you even get a story out there now because it's also partisan there's there i don't think there's a single source in this country that everybody would believe everybody would say okay that's to to one side or the other it's going to be fake news oh it's fake news 
you know, it's it's coming. Look where it's coming from. Look at your. I get that all the time. What's your source? I say, well, for most of this stuff, I, I can't go anywhere else for a source because the other the others aren't reporting it. But uh, that's I think the problem we have is that that you know it's how do we how do we even get news out there? Because if we did the JFK assassination, that's a little more nuanced because it's not really right or left. But if it came, at, it, let's say I don't know, let's say uh, Tucker Carlson decided to start reporting about that. Uh, then, you know, the people that hate Tucker Carlson for other things would just immediately, they'd, they'd say, I, I don't want it from him. You know, and it's, let's say, uh, I don't know, Rachel Maddow suddenly decided on the other side to, to change. Again, the people that hate her and say, I, I, you know, I'm not trusting that. It's fake news. So that's the problem we have. We're, we don't have a single source. I mean, I don't, I don't know where, where, who it would be. Who would you trust? There's, there's no, there's no source anywhere. And, uh, Whoever uses the word fake news is a hypocrite because the most of the time people say like fake news on that, but then they go yes, to something like this. And yeah. people overall reject Wikipedia. I have friends that for a living edit Wikipedia as that's their job. But I recently there was some editing going on or some somebody messed with uh, Ruth Payne's page. I think Max Good put up a post about it, changed a couple things that they said, oh, well, this was speculation that was included like it was fact. But if you look at like Lee Harvey Oswald at Wikipedia, and I did this like a couple of days ago. If you go down to where it says his his bomb threats that he gave, he, apparently he went to an FBI Dallas police headquarters and said that he was going to blow this place up because Hosty was stalking his wife or something. And then right after it says that, it says period. And then it goes to the next sentence. The next sentence goes, now there are varying accounts whether he decided he was going to blow up Dallas Police Department or he was saying he was going to report it to higher authorities. And I go... That's not varying. That is like two extremes, like really big ones. And then Hosty's the one that had the the note and destroyed he it. And then it down the toy, yeah. He said it was talking about taking it to higher authorities. So it's just like, okay, well, you can't trust anything Hosty's doing now. You know, I, I don't know that I trusted Hosty, but I have to tell you, I had many conversations with him over the years. And once I got past his roughness, um, I really, I really liked him as a person. And he told me, well, he believed Oswald did it, but he said, I'm a conspiracy theorist too, you know? Um, so he did tell me one interesting tidbit. Just, he, he said that, uh, and he put this in his book, that that he went out, he was having a cheese sandwich, I think, because he was Catholic and it was like meatless Friday. So he goes out and he sees the motorcade and he's looking for the president. He said, I almost missed him. And he said, he was, he said, everybody, in the motorcade was protected but Kennedy. I found that really interesting. Well, I think host hosty, there's lots of illusions out there that he wanted to talk. I'll have a lot about that in Hidden History 3, where he he had a lot more to say and he just again maybe he was afraid of his pension or whatever. I don't know what, but he's a guy that was very significant, obviously, because I mean you you I I think William agrees with me, but my belief is that Lee Harvey Oswald was on assignment, as Jim Garrison thought. At the time of the assassination, was told to infiltrate a plot that was going to assassinate the president. And my my opinion, I go beyond Garrison. I think that Jack Ruby and uh, David Ferry, probably Clay Shaw, some of the anti-Castro Cubans, they may have all been manipulated as well. For all we know, they were telling them all the same thing. Hey, you know, keep an eye on this. You know, they, these this little group here is you know going to assassinate the president. It's one way to pit them against each other. Because I I personally think that's the only thing. Uh, that explains that. But, uh, you know, we know that Hosty was keeping tabs on him. 
for whatever reason, that was it was. But he had to know Oswald was an FBI asset as well, and we don't know what was in that note. I I personally don't think Oswald's threatening to do anything. For all we know, if there was a note, he could you know he was saying something like, "I I suspect I may be said being set up as a patsy here. I'm not sure what's going on here. Who knows?" You know. Well, he blamed the he blamed the destroying of the note on Gordon Shanklin, as I recall. Yeah. That that Shanklin said, "Well, there's not going to be." There's not going to be a trial. Get it out of here. I don't ever want to see it again. But that was the few weeks before the assassination happened. So it's like, would they have closer surveillance on him or would he have been locked up for that type of threat? I mean, that's a bomb threat. Or, so I, I, it just makes me wonder. It's like certain aspects. It's kind of like if you look into like the Manson murders, like people think like, oh, Charles Manson, they were waiting for him until after he killed the Tate family or whatever you want to say. Well, they could have got him. They knew where he lived. They could have got him on prostitution charges. They could have got him on drug charges, but San Francisco police were told to stand down. So it's like, did they just let this happen? Did they just let this occur? It's the same thing with Oswald. He makes a bomb threat three weeks before the assassination and you just don't do anything about it. You just destroy the note and say, you know, we're going to leave this be. And then it happens. I mean, were they waiting for something to happen? That's the real question. Yeah. Well, and well, you, go ahead. Reed. That's just, you know, as Donald Rumsfeld would say, we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> do you think yeah, uh, with Ruby, though, do you think that the I think best the best part about even leaving the door open for a conspiracy is the fact that Ruby killed Oswald? Um on television in front of everyone. Cause I think at that moment, every single person was like, what? Um, it, the bad part about that is, is that the Warren commission was able to go full scale into labeling everything on Oswald um, because he was dead. Um, they didn't have to worry about lawyers. They didn't have to worry about any roadblocks in the way they could just start pinning every, every single thing on them. But that Ruby aspect of a strip club owner killing Oswald and then saying it was because he was a patriot and he was doing it because his heart went out to JFK. I mean, that left the door open for us to get all this research and be able to start opening up that door even more with the idea of conspiracy improved so much. It could have been closed shut if Oswald would have just went to jail, never said a single thing. You know, I mean, it could have, it could have. I just think that was like a, a shining light in the fact that Ruby did that because that has opened up that door for us. Well, let's talk about the guy that that was in uh, Ruby's cell, and he was he was watching Ruby, and he said, you know, that after Oswald died, he said, "Well, Jack, it looks like it's the electric chair for you," and he said he had been up to that point, he had been sweating, his his heart had been beating. He could say he said I could see it through his T-shirt, and he said he asked me for a cigarette, and. Uh, then he said, Oswald, I told him Oswald had died. He said he stopped sweating. His heartbeat slowed down and he got all calm. And he said, I don't smoke. <laughs> so his life or his family's life or all their lives depended on Oswald dying. I and, it, and, and, and we know that Ruby was an FBI informant as well. And again, I think he was being manipulated. And, I, and then we have the Jolly on West connection. So you have kind of a bit of a Sirhan Sirhan type crossover with Ruby where We've all seen the the film many times of uh, you know of Ruby coming through the crowd and unmolested and shooting Oswald point blank in the stomach, and but right before he does, you hear the little tit tat of the of the horn. The automobile blows the horn. So was that the triggering mechanism? Is that what Jolly on West you know or, or somebody implanted there? It's a Manchurian candidate. Very very strange because what 
I don't, I don't know how you could sell a guy on an idea that, okay, you know, you're going to kill him and you'll be lauded as a hero. I mean, but I think something like that, that's the only way it would explain it. Some kind of Manchurian candidate trigger. And I, I think that also explains Ruby had been messed with clearly. Because if you look at all the stuff he was talking about, a new form of government's going to come over the United States, he would go back and forth. Well, it's his, it's his statements after he shot Oswald when the police were grabbing onto him. He's like, I'm Jack Ruby. What are you doing? Like, that's it. like he knew the Dallas police. Why are they arresting him? Or it was he was under some type of trance. I don't necessarily believe that part because you don't see Joy on West until later. I just think that obviously he was told that, you know, he was going to get maybe a pat on the wrist, but he would be out like in a day or so. Um, Just everything for the cameras. Um, Cause that was exactly set up. I mean, no media decided that that was Jack Ruby right there. Even if it was hiding in the crowd. I mean, he was at a midnight press conference and he corrected somebody on the uh, fair play for Cuba committee. So, I mean, they were aware then why, I mean, he just randomly comes out at the perfect moment and not a single person acknowledged that he was there or knew that he was there. Yeah. 70 police officers is his fronts entirely, uh, entirely. But yeah, I mean, and Ruby is, is probably is one of the keys to it again. And that's why I suggest anybody, I doubt anybody watching your show is on the fence about this, but if they were, just read Jack Ruby's testimony because it's, it's, it's like conspiracy 101. It's very, you know, it's very, that's why there's no accident that, uh, that Oliver Stone and had Brian Doyle playing him in the movie in JFK. He chose to accent some of that testimony. Cause I, again, I remember as a young kid, that's that as a teenager that really grabbed my attention. Wow. Ruby's He's begging to be taken out of Washington and chief justice won't, you know, it's to me, it's just, there's no explanation for it. And of course, Ruby was at uh, Parkland as well, as uh, Seth Cantor pointed out. That's uh, kind of a co. He, he kept popping up at all those important places that day, which is uh, yeah, kind of strange. And it wasn't just Seth Cantor; it was Mrs. Wilma Tice as well. And I, I, I for some for some reason, a lot of the critics have glossed over her testimony. But she's another one of those interesting. And I, I have it. I quote from extensively in Hidden History, where she, she, if you look at, I think it was Burt Griffin. Burke Griffin's another interesting guy because I talk a lot about uh, uh, oh god I'm forgetting the guy's name what's the guy's name uh, oh god, Dean Patrick Dean uh, the way he threatened him and you know Dean had to have a second you know he demanded to be seen heard before Earl Warner that said it said what happened and the guy said you know I can get you some help and you're probably going to be needing it you know because you know Jack Ruby did not tell you he entered through the Main Street ramp he did not tell you that he planned this ahead of time. But Willa Tice basically is the same kind of thing where she described, uh, the, 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 Griffin goes, he, 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 you have to read the testimony. It says it like over and over again. It's like, so Mrs. Tice, are you sure you want to testify? You know, you don't have to testify. No one called you. I mean, she, he says like 10 times, he goes, would you rather not testify? I mean, he doesn't want her to testify. It's a, You have to read this stuff to believe it. And then she talks about, the threatening phone calls she's received. There's no questions that she's bringing up. He doesn't care. And of course, she describes Jack Ruby. He said, well, could it have been somebody? Well, somebody else named Jack that looked just like Ruby. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, it's so clear. He was stalking him. So the entire nonsense that he you know, sent out a telegram to a stripper and uh, it was a spontaneous moment is absolute nonsense. Again, because they're, uh, well, Matthias testified to it, and, and obviously is, we, we have it on film where he corrected Henry Wade when he said the wrong name he wanted to know. It's a fair play for Cuba committee, Henry. How, how did Jack Ruby know that? I thought he didn't know Oswald. How did he know so much about him? Who got hit in the face with a gun at Parkland? 
Did anybody? Yeah, it was an FBI, an FBI man who was coming in. Uh, Herschel Jacks, I think. That's right. Yeah, and this Secret Service agent hits him with a gun, I believe. That's when they were stealing yeah. the body, I guess, or not where they were getting ready to steal the body. Uh, they just weren't yeah. letting anybody in. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I, I still question why Ruby was at Parkland in the first place. I mean, it, someone mentioned to me that, oh, it's good. you don't know, he could have been just trying to be a nosy person. I'm like, that just doesn't, that doesn't make sense, man. If you're technically running a strip club, why the hell are you losing your business aspect? Especially if you look at how much he was in debt as well, too. And then after the assassination, he's speculating buying a second club. I mean, that's suspicious stuff right there. Well, I appreciate the time you guys gave me to talk on my show. Um, I know we kind of went all over the board here, but I appreciate it. Um, I like hearing, you know, like it's like when I talked to Blakey in the beginning, he told me, um, where, where he was when Kennedy was assassinated and shaking Robert Kennedy's hand. When I hear William Law talk about his experiences interviewing people, I, I like that background stuff. Like I liked uh, how the day went kind of whole deal. Um, and then Don Jeffries, I always respect your uh, knowledge on the assassination as well too. And Russell, I appreciate you giving me the time, man. I know you've written extensively on the medical evidence as well. Um, I know we didn't really talk about the Clark panel, but is there a place where people can find your guys' works? Um, William Law, if you want to start, uh, Don, you go second, and Russell will end with you. You can, you, you know, I'm out there. You can, uh, you can look me up on the internet. There's lots of podcasts out there, including yours. You can go to Trine Day or any bookstore for my books. Um, that's about it. Nothing special. Uh, my website is donaldjeffries.media. Uh, I have uh, six books out there. I have like three more that are coming out in some kind of order soon. And then apparently William and I have a, another project that'll be that'll be out there as well. So we're we're always writing something. People can find uh, they'll search for me and probably find out more than they uh, even want to know. <laughs> yeah, my my stuff. Um, if uh, if you want to look at the book, it's on Amazon. It's only an ebook at the moment, uh, but it's out there. And uh, if you want to do a Google search for me or DuckDuckGo, which is uh, less tracked than Google, uh, Russell Kent JFK, you can find uh, podcasts and uh, various lectures that I've given, uh, maybe some more of my writings too. And I'll link it all in the description. And thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.